Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Hello, ladies. Hello, gentlemen. This is the Victor Davis Hanson Show. I'm Jack Fowler, the host. The star and namesake is Victor Davis Hanson, and he is the Martin and Ely Anderson Senior Fellow at the Hoover Institution and the Wayne and Marsha Buskey Distinguished Fellow in History at Hillsdale College. Two websites to tell you about. One is victorhanson.com. Its name is the Blade of Perseus, but that's the web address. You need to go there regularly someday, Victor. I will learn how to pronounce that word <laughs> someday. But you need to go there regularly, and I'll tell you more why uh, later. And also, justthenews.com, that is John Solomon's website, and this podcast uh, finds its happy home there. Lots, lots, lots to talk about today. I believe this program is going to be uh, up and out on the on the webs, uh, worldwide webs on Tuesday April 4th, and that is the day when former President Donald Trump is scheduled to be indicted in New York. And we will get Victor's thoughts on that and plenty more right after these important messages. Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. Ophthalmologist Dr. Strauss has seen firsthand how the Metaverse is helping surgeons practice the procedures to treat cataracts. Cataracts are the primary cause of avoidable blindness. He works with a virtual reality training platform developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International to help surgeons develop the muscle memory they need. The result? More confident, capable surgeons. And even more importantly... Patients who can see. Explore more stories like Dr. Strauss's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. Back with the Victor Davis Hanson show. So, Victor, I'm going to read a little something here. The Trump indictment. We have multiple counts reportedly near three dozen. We have head fakes from the Manhattan DA. Alvin Bragg said that the grand jury was in recess for a week while he was really what was really happening was he was prepping charges on business fraud against the former president. The New York City surrender of Donald Trump has been coordinated between Bragg's office and Trump's counsel. The surrender is scheduled for Tuesday the 4th. Donald Trump may end up at the notorious Rikers Island in New York City, the hellhole. I think um, April 4th may be a day that will go down in jurisprudential infamy. Victor, let's leave aside the... um, 
talk of this has hurt or helped Donald Trump as a 2024 candidate. I think that's for the moment a superfluous topic. What does this massive carpet bombing, criminal indictment by Alvin Bragg, Manhattan DA against Donald Trump mean about the state of America? Well, I don't recognize the country anymore because there's two systems of justice. If you take documents out and you're a vice president and you don't have any legal authority to declassify them, and then you spread them through unsecured locations, that's tolerable. If you do it while you're president and you have the ability to declassify them almost by fiat, then you're under you're going to be the subject of a special counsel investigation. So what I'm saying, Jack, is this. What did Donald Trump not do? I'll tell you what he did not do. He didn't destroy 30,000 emails that were under a federal subpoena as Hillary Clinton did. He didn't take devices that were on a federal subpoena and destroy their hard drives and wipe them clean and then joke about it. He didn't marry his sister so he could become a U.S. citizen uh, in a fake bigamy case and to warp or evade U.S. immigration law like Ilhan Omar did. He didn't take all of his devices that were on in his possession and were under federal subpoena and wiped them clean as the lawyers in the Mueller investigation did. He didn't lie under oath in front of the Senate flat out lied like James Clapper. And then when he was called on it, he said, I gave the least untruthful answer. He didn't flat out lie like John Brennan did on two occasions when he was asked about whether he had spied illegally on Senate staff computers or whether he uh, could confirm there was no collateral damage on drone assassinations. He didn't do that. He didn't doctor doctor a document for a FISA court, forge it, alter it, and then get a slap on the wrist like uh, Kevin Kleinsmith. He didn't do that. He didn't, in the 2016 election, hire a foreign national to work for him and pay that foreign national, which is illegal to do on a campaign through three paywalls, as Hillary Clinton did. He didn't testify before Congress and on 245 occasions say that he could not remember or he didn't know anything about it, as James Comey did. He didn't go under congressional testimony as Robert Mueller did. And the central question, if they asked Donald Trump, do you what do you know? What do you know about this disclosure? And he says, I don't know anything about it. I wasn't concerned with it. Nothing like Robert Mueller did with the dossier and Fusion GPS. He didn't do that. And he didn't do what John Kerry did when Trump was president. That is, go to Paris and talk to the Iranians about ways to subvert getting uh, the Trump policy on Iran, violation of the so-called Logan Act. He didn't do that either. So my point, I can go on forever, but what I don't understand is what the Democrats are doing now is they know, they know, they know, they know they cannot appeal to 51% of the population on almost every issue that they are pushing. An open border, radical cutbacks in fossil fuel energy, natural gas, 
gas, oil, the Afghanistan policy, the unlimited blank check to Ukraine, the embrace of critical race theory, radical identity politics, the big city DAs that are letting people out for crime. Donald Trump didn't go hit somebody over with on the head with an axe and get it reduced to a misdemeanor. He didn't do any of that. So they know they can't appeal to people on the issues. So they go to process, 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 process. Sometimes that's existential. Depending on whether they're in power or not in the Senate, they are either for or against the filibuster. If they win the Electoral College, they call it the blue wall and they love it. If the blue wall crumbles, then it's a racist relic from the ancient white man constitution. If they need more senators, then they want Puerto Rico and Washington, D.C. to be states. If they want, they get angry that some states have a voter ID in the way you need one to cash a check, then they want a national voter ID law that circumvents the Constitution's uh, assignment of primary responsibility to the states for that. If they have the Warren Court, they don't want to tamper with nine, nine justices. If they don't, and you have a conservative majority, then that is a racist court, and they want to outdo FDR's 1937 court packing, and court packing then becomes good. And so that's what they do. And what did they, they've hit on something, Jack. I think our listeners should realize this country is run financially and politically, unfortunately, between your city, Jack, New York, and Washington, D.C., and that is Sella Corridor. That's where all the power of governance and finance is. It's also the most liberal place in the United States. And it has the most, I would call, politicized, weaponized uh, federal and state and local attorneys. And it has the most, quote, unquote, marginalized populations that are on juries. So what they do is, the DAs do, they go after prominent people on the right. and you, and they do it in Chicago, too, as we saw with Conrad Black. And they do the Conrad Black formula. They just get all sorts of writs for their indictments. They just throw the, this sink at people. And then they make the defendant get each one dismissed. Meanwhile, they're cherry picking a favorite friend, judge, that they know socially or they know politically or they're in cahoots with. And then they make sure they get it. We saw that with the Scooter Libby's uh, debacle. Or Elliot Abrams. Elliot Abrams, you name it. And then they get the marginalized people jury. And then they appeal uh, that the person is a racist or he's conservative or he's a, and they convict them. And that's how they they that's called lawfare. And that's what they do. And that's what they're going to do for Trump. I have no doubt they're going to convict him. I think they're going to throw writ after writ after writ. He's going to be tied up in court. And then they're going to put him before a Bronx or, I don't know, maybe a Manhattan. Manhattan will be Manhattan. Yeah. You know, what, above 121st Street or something? And they're going to put them in there. And they're going to wink and nod that this guy is a white supremacist. And he hates you. And they're going to get him convicted. Right. And then... Because we're not, we'll get into the politics of it, but 
as you said, the delay of a second. But then we're in interesting historical territory, because what this will do is this is going to send a message to the Republicans. They always play by the Marcus of Queensbury rules, and it's never tit for tat. We're Nobler. We're Mitt Romney. We're John McCain. We're Jerry Ford. We're Bob Dole. We don't do that. And over the years, that has been suicidal. So what they're going to do is, and we saw that when Kevin McCarthy finally wised up and he said, you know what, if Nancy Pelosi says that my nominees for committee members as the House Minority Leader are taboo, then they're taboo. And he kicked Adam Schiff off. And if they're going to either mock a president by tearing up the State of the Union on TV, maybe they should do it. If they're going to say that we need to get the filibuster out when they're in the majority, maybe when the Republicans are doing it, they should do that. And so they're going to have to go tit for tat. And what that means is it's a destruct. If they have to do that, it's really the destruction of jurisprudence and politics as we know it. Because you see, what's going on is the Democrats have this this brilliant strategy is. It goes like this. We are screwing up the United States. We are deliberately warping and sabotaging 233 years of jurisprudence and constitutional protocol. And we can do this because you don't. And there's enough of you law-abiding citizens to keep the country going. You're the guys that frack. You're the guys that mine. You're the guys that farm. You're the guys that build. We regulate, torment and go after you. But we count on you doing that. And you will obey the law so you can allow us to warp it. And if the Republicans ever retaliate, then the country's going to go to hell. And they know that. So we are defenseless because we love the country and want it to secede. And they have a free reign to abuse it. Because if we if that's not true and we retaliate, can you imagine what what would happen no. with Joe Biden? He right. any any time they would go through that Hunter laptop, they would go through every subpoena document and anything remotely that took place. One gift, one meeting in Mississippi, Alabama, Wyoming, Utah, any conservative state, a local I don't know right. Salt, Salt Lake City DA or a state attorney general in Alabama or you name it. Right. They, they would just uh, North Dakota. They would they yeah. would indict Joe Biden and right. go after him, just like they do in a third world country, just like they do in Brazil or Argentina or anywhere else. That's the and now they're crowing and they're thinking this is so great because they finally got Donald Trump. And, you know, there has been communication between Mr. Bragg the federal attorneys in the District of New York, Democratic Party, probably the White House, because he wouldn't dare do this if he wasn't given the green light. And we know what the strategy is. The strategy is to fatally weaken Donald Trump at the same time winning him enormous popularity. He's already running ads against DeSantis almost every night on Fox News, Trump is. He's raised $4 million. Everybody's pissed off, and they should be, excuse the language, about the treatment of Donald Trump. I think the Democratic rationale, and this is not unique, everybody's, it's obvious, was to make sure that Donald Trump, A, is nominated, and B, is so tied up 
the moment he is indicted at this indictment, if this was the weakest indictment of all three of them, the Mar-a-Lago special prosecutor is much more accomplished than this buffoon. And he's much more political even. And he will find a way, I think, to indict Donald Trump, although he'll look really ridiculous now. He's going to look ridiculous either way. If he doesn't indict Trump, people are going to say, you met Bragg upstage you, this buffoon, and you're a special prosecutor. So, But if he does indict him, they're going to say, well, how about Mike Pence and how about Biden? And then we have the Georgia ridiculous grand jury with that nincompoop, ignoramus woman that went all through the media bragging about how biased she was. And they, I think, will indict him. And the the rationale, the agenda, the strategy will be for all of 2023, all of 2024, up to the convention, he will be in the news every single day with a negative story. Right. He will be fighting for his life and he will be the candidate. And then yeah. he will lose to non-compos Joe Biden by three or four points. That's what they want. That's the strategy. By the way, Victor, there are two other cases, too. That's the E. Jean Carroll's rape allegation. That yes. is supposed yeah. to take place uh, later in this month. Um, and then the New York Attorney General's uh, tax fraud suit against uh, Trump. So I, I, I there's a conga line here. You know, I can't believe it. There's a story out today about the University of Delaware uh, Biden think tank that got $6.7 million into that kitty, and they had $12 million from, flow from in. China? Or yes, where? yes, $6.7 from China. And then Joe Biden has never reported any income on that fund. Although his entire family made a bundle and there's all these emails uh, warning the family that you have to at least have some kind of symposium. You can't just use it all for. So basically a money laundering deal where University of Delaware came to Biden and said, raise us a bunch of money. And then if you do, we'll give you some for this phony sent Biden Center, which is never I have. There's no record that it's ever done anything. And, and using nonprofit status to do it. If you had a federal prosecutor who could subpoena every Biden member's tax records and you could subpoena all the bank records of this money flowing in that was probably not, forget about the cash payment, all the money and you collated them, you would find that that Biden family has enormous tax exposure. Why this guy's been going around the country as president, lecturing us on every, the wealthy should pay their fair share, and they won't do it. They will not do it. And so, you know, I, yeah. it just it just overwhelming. I was watching the, you know, I wrote a column about left wing violent sheep about right. how they love to think about killing, beating, burning, decapitating Trump, beating him up. Cory Booker said that. Robert De Niro said that. Joe Biden. Uh, Jane Fonda said on the news that she thought murder was kind of the appropriate penalty for pro-lifers. We had that crazy professor at Wayne State said he wanted to kill people. We had the transgender manifesto that suppressed and blamed the victims, the Christian nine-year-olds that were killed, all of that. And then I, I, 
And then we had somebody go into the Texas legislature. But I, when I filed the column, I didn't realize what was going on in Tennessee. That came right. out the next day. So the left basically says, we're going to use violence to get our way. And we're not going to be prosecuted. None of the kids at Stanford Law School uh, were ever kicked out or disciplined. Video still not released, right? The, the no, school's still they, suppressing the video? Oh, yes, yes. And everybody on the right is, is very naive. I have no problem with Dean Martinez. I read that long, long, long letter she wrote on the one hand. On the other hand, we're going to do this, but we have to be careful not to do this. Yes, but maybe. So-so. Kind of. Sort of. Okay, Never once in there did she have a reasoned legal argument by saying that this is a, she did. If you decipher that document, she said you did filter out a there is a campus policy that forbids disruption of invited speakers. B, they disrupted the speech. C, we the dean uh, enabled that and then little footnotes to each of those. But we don't know really who instigated it. And B, maybe they thought the dean was right. All these excuses that would never hold up in a, a court of law. So Victor goes down the road and dra- gets drunk and runs off somebody off the road and kills him. And he's guilty of drunk, fatal drunk driving. And he says, but but I I, I wasn't aware of the law. Or I, I, I had a I, I had an official that I saw a commercial and he said that, you know, be careful about DUI, but he never said it was a, an offense. It's just crazy. All the little exceptions, maybes, uh, excuses that she used for the fundamental truth that they broke the law of, as it's as it's described by Stanford. And so did the administrator. She did, too. Miss Steinbach, she should have been fired. And right. the video should have been released and they could should have identified those students and they should have been expelled. And then you would never have another demonstration. I know those. I know the Stanford. I went there. I'm right. on campus there. I understand the Stanford mentality and everybody should know what it is. These kids, both uh, the marginalized kids that are there and the so-called wealthy elite kids are there. They are the most sanctimonious elite career-driven, self-infatuated people in the world. Don't believe that they're nihilist revolutionaries. They're not. Every one of those people you see with pink hair and a ring in their nose in those videos, they're going to be a federal judge or right. corporate corporate lawyer in right. 10 years. These are absolutely, these are the, you know, these are the people who work for Obama in their 40s. And if you expel them from Stanford Law School, are they are they are deemed unqualified by the bar to take the test? They're going to have a meltdown. And you could really see that with the FBI lawyer that forged a document who should be in prison. And the whole left wing legal community came out in support of client. He's a great guy. He didn't mean it. He was a little zealous. Let's give him a one felony count, and then we'll just kind of give him a 30-day this, and now we'll let him go, come back and be a lawyer, which he is today. So that's the thing that, yeah. that really got me about this loss case. And, and I don't know what the summation of all this is. When you have two sets of jurisprudence, two sets of laws, 
And they're right. so ace. What do you do? Because as I said at the beginning of this rant, if one side expects one side to be the parent and they're going to be the whiny teenager, then the parent has no choice. When your kid keeps yelling at you and saying this and that, yeah, I'm not going to do this. I'm going to run away. I'm going to spin this. I'm going to up the credit card. And you say, well, I'll do the same thing. And then maybe you won't eat. <laughs> you know, if right. a parent says to a 15 year old, you took my credit card and you, you went down and splurged for a thousand dollars. I don't have that money. So you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to splurge more and then they're going to cancel it and you're not going to eat. But parents don't do that. Right. And so Republicans are kind of the parent. The conservatives are. And these guys afraid, are the, afraid of tough love. Yeah. Yeah. And tough I don't love for what, America. Yeah. How do you how far do you go with tough love before you blow up everything? Right. Because if some, as you were saying before, if some prosecutor in Wyoming uh, filed um, a RICO charges against the Biden Corleone family, I think we would we would think, well, that's that's just something improper about that. Remember when Tom DeLay was uh harass this you know there's predecessors to what's happening uh, this this hellbent texas da yeah uh trying to ruin his career we were gassed at that rightly so i, I think uh, the only hope just to be on yeah. record the only hope right. for this country is that every traditionalist conservative democrat moderate democrat independent any republican says I don't I have a problem with this or that issue, but this country is in danger and we have to get rid of these people out of the House and right. out of the Senate and out of the presidency. And then if you were to do that, then you're going to have to put enormous pressure and they would have to say to the president, you're going to finish that blank, blank wall. And then you're going to deport all the people, the 7 million people who came in illegally. They're going to be deported. Mr. Obrador is not going to give you any more lectures about how wonderful 40 million people came in the United States illegally, basically, and how they should vote a particular way. He will be quiet when you send 7 million people back to him. And then you're going to put the cartels on a terrorist list. And then you're going to tax remittances at 10 and make six billion dollars off the 60 billion that flows out and then you're going to have to have the supreme court you have to hope if they declare affirmative action on you're going to have to really go after people that break the law because you know what they're going to do jack they're going to try to circumvent that as they do now in the, in california right. where it's against the law but my point is on crime on gas and all, every they're going to have to go the full max and then because you know what will be if they were to do that you could turn this country around very quickly. And what would happen is people who were so vehement would see that life got better. In California, gas would get cheaper. Electricity would be affordable. And things would start to work again. And people would say, well, I don't like those guys, but I'm not going to vote against them because the world is returning to normalcy. But this stuff is unsustainable on every right. level. Right. Find banks going under or no border or crime. It, it's just unsustainable. Yeah, and, Victor, back on the jurisprudence and the, and Trump, we have um, the former speaker, Nancy Pelosi, <laughs> twisting the like going to court is an opportunity to prove your innocence. She tweeted about that. And it's kind of, well, I don't, I, she, 
the left has no problem standing things on their head, right? I mean, Martin Luther King about content of character in the garbage can. Imagine how uh, liberals might analyze, say, uh, To Kill a Mockingbird, <laughs> Equal Justice Before the Law, a great movie, but, you know, a kind of a, a, a liberal cultural point, which I think they would reject now, given what's just happened to, to Trump. Right. Uh, yeah. You would like just, to say that Nancy Pelosi at 81 is non-accomplishment is like Biden. She's not. She's always been stupid. So when she says he has to prove his innocence, she's a speech. She was the speaker of the House. She's the most prominent Democrat in the House, maybe in the country. And so if she doesn't understand that you are innocent until they prove you guilty rather than Biden, then she doesn't know anything about the country. This is a woman who said, why are you sending people to cities that are here illegally when we need them up here to pick our fruit, right? This is a woman who gave us lecture after lecture after lecture about Trump's terrible policies, and we had to have a complete shakedown and snuck into her hairdresser and got caught on camera. You know, this is the person who is a very dangerous person. And she's and this, every time she opens her mouth, she says something like this. It's really scary. And when you look at Hillary Clinton and you look at Nancy Pelosi and you look at Joe Biden mm -hmm. and it, it's 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 a geriatric really, nightmare. Well, it's reflected in these polls. When you look at this Wall Street Journal poll and when they ask these key questions, is America a singular exceptional country? Are you feel do you feel any patriotism? Do you feel that children is or child raising is important? Do you have a religiosity. It was just night and day with the people who identified as Republican versus Democrat. And right. you can see that the, these people are the representations. Sammy keeps saying on our podcast right. that great the Sammy. The, yes, the leaders reflect the people. So when I've said to her off the air, wow, these people are really bad, she'll say, well, who voted for them? They are not stupid. They voted for them for certain reasons. And what would those reasons be? I guess that the primary reason is that they're either a very wealthy so that these injurious policies will not affect them negatively or B, they want something for free. And so we got this scene this week, Jack, when they I don't know if you saw it in San Francisco, the filming of that reparations hearing. Did you see those people come in there? and lose their uh, temper and scream and dance. And they said, basically, five million is not enough. Right. But California wants to change the grid to basically all solar with batteries. And we have the highest electricity in, in the country, and we have the highest poverty rate. But they don't care about the poor. They want to keep going. But they said it would be 41 billion, billion to finish the solar wacky project. And we're going to be about 40 billion when this deficit is finally seen this year that we have to come up with. Right. And how how could you even contemplate $300 billion? They're still going through with this charade. If they were to do that, I'm almost hoping they do in San Francisco because the, the tax would be so enormous and people would flee that city. They'd have to. They couldn't. They couldn't survive financially, and that would really send a message. And I don't know. It's 
it's so really this is if someone stuff. yeah someone wrote it was here's the game plan to ruin california we're in you know it's it's well uh, into I the third it. act I, I, think. I have to apologize to my audience i don't want to be so dreary because sammy and i had a new little at the beginning of every podcast she asked me to have good news but i'm writing right. a chapter right now on may 29th 10 in the morning Black Tuesday, 1453, when the walls of Constantinople were breached. And what I'm getting at is the great city of a million people that was the bastion of Christendom in the East, was the custodian of Romanity for 1,100 years. When they went through those walls, there was only 50,000 people left in that city. There were vast swaths of weeds and gravel and some little villages that once was packed with a million people, 50,000, they had all left. Either they couldn't get security or they were afraid of uh, disease or they were afraid of the Ottomans, but they left or they thought that the government was corrupt. And that's when I, when you read these primary sources from contemporaries that try to explain it, it's very eerie. It's so close to what you're seeing in Portland and Minneapolis, right. Los Angeles, San Francisco, New York, Washington. All those great cities that generation and generation sacrificed to build, they are being destroyed at, at light light speed, speed of light. Look at look, uh, you know, we have Detroit as the great example. You know, it was the it was the runner up for the 1968 Olympics. Uh, which I think was probably Jack, chosen and say af after World War II in 1946, yeah. it had the highest GDP of any city in the United States. It was like six percent. The auto industry was supplying the world. They had the best architects. They had everything, and they had the best opera. Everything, and I got in trouble in a review because I said uh, in an essay or actually a book. I said, if you looked at Hiroshima in 1945 and you looked at Detroit in 1945 and then you looked at each city in 2010, you would think that Detroit got nuked and that Hiroshima was Detroit. They switched. Today, Detroit looks like Hiroshima did in 1945, and Hiroshima looks like Detroit did in 1945. And the only difference is right. we did it to ourselves. So whatever the programs or the policies that destroyed Detroit, they were more interest than a nuclear bomb because we bombed Hiroshima and it recovered. But Detroit never recovered from this government bomb. It never did. Right. It's much more insidious and dangerous what they did in Detroit and what they're doing everywhere. And I've never seen that the level of hatred on the left. If you look at, I used to, you know, I'll give you one example. About eight or nine years ago, somebody sent me a clip from Joe Scarborough and somebody on there attacked me. Um, and I won't say who it was. He's, creepy guy and <laughs> joe on. well go ahead joe, say it uh, no, I, I, yeah I, i've already and then joe Gar scarborough says something like wow that's kind of weird to go after him like that and i turned i mean in other words he was left wing you know his very his i think he's influenced by his romantic liaisons of the moment and that affects his politics uh, but he's but he's now so hard left 
And I watched him just screaming and yelling the other day. I could, and then I, I was just, I thought, I want to just spend a morning while I'm writing. So while I was typing, I turned on the news and I flipped it and I saw that view that is just full of hatred. All they talk about, and they have these names, you know, whoopee, joy. Uh, they're not joyful, whippy people. Man, it was all about white, 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 white. Right. I've never, I've never seen anything in the country so different now that we just take one group, and when you say white, it's always in a negative context, right. and it's always a collective, as if everybody, as if I have anything in common or you do with Nancy Pelosi, right? Right. And it, it doesn't make any sense. But it's just full of hatred. Well, look at Victor. Look at the late night, right? Once upon a time, with Johnny Carson and and uh, knockoffs on other networks, but something anyone and everyone could watch and not feel a, a, attacked by or threatened by. And they were certainly not uh, the, the Johnny Carson show wasn't a political show, but every one of those shows now is, and it's a show of the left. And they and they just spew hatred at people like you and me. No, they hate. It. I think everybody should realize it's listening. I came to the conclusion that the left hates you. They hate yeah. you, and I I can feel it when I go places and people want to argue, or I look at my email. I get uh, even. I can feel it in my former circle of friends. I'd say that in the last. Since 2015 or 16, I would say, or maybe when I wrote that book, The Case for Trump. Right. And, the, and actually, the original title was Why Trump Won. The publisher changed it. But my point is this. I would say the number of people that I used to be very close friends with, I mean, really close, like my inner circle of 20 best friends. Right. 15 are gone. And family and friends. And I, yes, and I can say in every single case, they initiated it. In other words, they wrote me something to the effect of don't call me again. This for you to win back our friendship, you should do this. Yeah. They declared an anathema against I, you. Yes. Yeah, I, right. I can't believe you did this. Yeah. You're a big disappointment to me. Oh, my uh, gosh. Or they reviewed my books, people who were my former editors. Just, it's amazing. But I haven't done that to anybody on the left that I know. And I still, that that hates, let's say they hate Trump, they hate Republicans, they flipped out. I still haven't cut them off. Well, I have, if I, have, I may, I no I, yeah, if I may, you, you mentioned Joe Scarborough before. And you know that and our listeners don't care about my life, but Joe's a very good friend of mine and has been for a long time, just dating back through National Review things. And and uh, yeah, I agree. Joe's gone quite a different man today than he was 10 years ago. But my mindset is, I think, a conservative mindset. I don't abandon my friends, you know, but the left abandons their friends. And, uh, politics yeah. becomes everything with them. Yeah, it's every, yeah. everything. It absorbs them. And I, I feel really bad. I mean, if I were to say, who are the closest people in your family and who are the closest people in your circle of friends, I would say I could name 15 names. And I can tell you that in different methods or manners, each, each one of them has uh, communicated to me they want nothing to do with me. Yeah. 
Well, I bet a lot of people listening to this right now, Victor, are shaking their heads and saying amen because they've they've uh, gone through the same uh, experiences, and it's uh, shameful what what uh, America has uh, become in this way. And you're right. For I went to a funeral transition. Yeah. I went to a funeral uh, of a dear first cousin, very close to him. I really admire him. Mark Henry is a wonderful person, and I would say that I saw people, relatives and friends that I hadn't seen in a while. And then I saw people I didn't know. And the people I didn't know were very friendly. They either watched Fox or something they wanted to talk about. But the other people just, it was very cold. It was weird. They didn't want, they just kept away. Wow. Like, what are you doing here? And And Mark was very conservative. He was a wonderful person. Not because he was just conservative. He just was. But... I can't, well, my point is this, at a solemn occasion, when it's a funeral, you're trying to jointly honor somebody's life and lament their passing. Why would people come into a church, Catholic church, and why would they would they have that venom and not release it and yeah. give, give you a dirty look or turn away when you say hello? I don't understand that. This is the fundamental uh, at the core of, say, BLM and well, let's just pick on BLM. The concept of forgiveness. This is why I can't stand what Christian, you know, churches or Catholic churches have these BLM placards out in front of it because B Christianity is about forgiveness. As a, there's no salvation without forgiveness. But BLM is totally and hates forgiveness. Forgiveness is impossible. Uh, under its under although its I think I think you give BLM too much credit. I don't Maybe even think do. they think. I think it's just a a total shakedown mafioso organization. Remember how BLM started? The Troika were three right. angry black women who were lesbians. And at yeah. start, you start. I wrote an article for the New Criterion. If people should look at it, I, I researched it very carefully. They started out before the Ferguson phenomenon as objectifying, talking about being objectified by black men and the black super masculine credo. It wasn't necessarily just race. It was anti-male. And then when Ferguson happened, Michael Ford, they transmogrified to an umbrella organization. But it was always from the very beginning, there were financial irregularities. So when I heard that these corporations like the Silicon Valley Bank that went bankrupt was taking depositors money and giving them $76 million. Right. And the three of them absconded with all these big, beautiful homes and money. I wasn't surprised. That was the purpose of it. Right. It was kind of like a warped version of GoFundMe. You know what I mean? Right, right. That's really nice. We're paying zero percent interest, but we're giving we're giving our our profits to these radicals. This yeah. is sickening. Hey, Victor, yeah. we we've uh, we've got to talk about another topic yeah. or two. So uh, I think one of them we well, have to take a break too, right? Well, that's what. Yeah, we're going to talk about hard work, some stuff you've written, mm. and we'll we'll get to that right after uh, this important message. As a professional welder, Shayna Ford uses Forge FX to practice over and over, which helps her improve her skills. The more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. 
As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. We're back with the Victor Davis Hanson Show. There is a website. Its web address is victorhanson.com. It's known as the Blade of Perseus, and that is Victor's official home on the World Wide Web's you should visit it because you'll find the links to everything Victor does, writes, his appearances. You'll also find the links to his ultra articles. Those are significant. And we're going to talk about uh, a new series uh, that you've started, Victor. But uh, you can only read them if you subscribe. Subscription is five bucks to get in the door. There's a You can pay five bucks a month as you go along, but discounted uh, for $50 a year. If you are a fan of Victor's, Wisdom, it comes orally and it comes through the keyboard. And you need to subscribe to victorhanson.com to see, uh, to get all the wisdom Victor uh, dispels over a year. Is dispel the right word? Dispenses, I think that's the right word. Uh, so, uh, anyway, there's that. Uh, please, please uh, check it out. Victor, part one of the, um, uh, one of the series that you've uh, written now is about hard work. I'd like to pre- pre- proceed it with a, a, a little something, get your comment on it, and then we can talk about this, the ongoing series. Um, I was at the, this past weekend, or this, excuse me, this past couple of days, I was down in Washington. There was a National Review Institute had a summit, and I, you know, I'm still contributing at Urge to National Review. So I I went, and there was a interesting conversation uh, between Rich Lowry, the editor, and Alan Guelzo, who's the you know, the great historian. I know you know Professor Guelzo. He's yeah. now at um, uh, James Madison Center at yes. uh, Princeton. And he, uh, he won the... Re- I, yeah, I just reviewed his Robert E. Lee book for oh. uh, the uh, Claremont Review. It's a very good book. Oh, terrific. Okay. Uh, that's a great publication, by the way. Uh, folks should... Uh, Everyone should subscribe to that. They were anyway. They were talking about uh, you know what make what are, what are America's strengths? It's it's an inherent strength, and they of course they got to talking about World War II and how uh, you know once war war comes upon us now America must get into this mode of of uh, becoming the arsenal of democracy, and the initial time it took for building destroyers and aircraft carriers, etc. I may have misheard, but let's just say it's a year. And within a few years, two years or so, they are down to 90 days, or maybe even less, to construct these liberty ships. Yeah. And what one of the points was that it was the it wasn't the um uh, the designers of the ship, et cetera, who made this important uh, 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 collapsing of the process, which was important to winning the war. You know, it's the speed of of America producing all this stuff. It was the men and women, well, I'll say mostly men, you did have Rosie the Riveter, but the men and women who were working, who 
who understood what they were doing, found the shortcuts, the, who influenced the processes, and said, this is what America really is, this kind of democracy of the hardworking individual. And I thought, well, that's, you know, that's Gwelzo's point. That is a really interesting point. This, yeah. is, the, this is really the heart of America. So I, now, switching a little, you started this series about the 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 greatness of people who work hard and how they define America. So, Victor, there's a big jump ball here. Anything about the, talk about the series you've written? If you want to go back and as the one of the great World War II historians comment on on that, please ha, please uh, do, well, do what uh, you wish. Well, I mean, Henry Kaiser just as an experiment wanted to see if he could you know seventy five hundred ton Liberty ship if they could build it in 24 hours, and they did. But usually they could do it in three days, finally. And then they went into the freedom ships were even bigger. So it was, but you got to remember that generation. It was very different than this generation. That generation came out of the depression. I can remember my father saying to me, he said, wow, dad, when they, I was in high school and I said, so they, they put you in a dorm with a bunch of people and then, you had to eat all these care, uh, food. He said, what do you mean? I lived in a shack next to the barn. We had a two-bedroom house, and my sister had one bedroom, and my parents had the other, and it was 900 square feet, and we thought we were in heaven, but I wanted my own room, so that I built a little shack under the barn. I had an outhouse and cold water, and that's how I grew up. So when I when I went into the Army... They had clean sheets and they had good food and they had clean uniforms and we had, it was wonderful. And I said, yeah, but all that training you had to do. And he was in the Marine Corps. Then they transferred him to the B-29s. And he said, that was nothing compared to what my fault. We had to get up at 430 in the morning and milk the cows. And then we broke horses during the day when he was, when I got home from school, then we butchered pigs to eat. He said, this was and that that was that whole generation. It was they were capable of anything because they had nothing, and uh, they were highly uh, unified and they were patriotic. And you know, every once in a while, you get a revision. When I wrote the World uh, Second World Wars, I read thousands of pages on World War II, and I had my entire life. But there's a lot of revisionism. The United States is this was that. It's not true. That generation was the greatest generation. And it was partly this idea of uh, duty and unity, but also hard work. I wrote this first thing on hard work. It was a series. And then I looked at, I won't mention the author, but there was uh, a weird, I'd written, I'd already written the first one. And then I thought, I'll just write one. But then there was this article where I write called How Hard Work Destroys Character by an author who I admire. He writes good stuff. And it was all about the crap jobs he had. And how that wasted his precious time. And he, he was never, the, you know what I mean? It just. Oh, gosh. Really? And I thought I used to, you know, when I was doing that, I would think I had a professor. I won't mention his name. Either. He was a wonderful professor. But one day he had us over to his home. And he had bought a beautiful chest of drawers at an antique, you know, dealer. And right. we were all there. And he said, well, what do you look at that? And it was all scratched up. It had been a mahogany, but it would. I don't even think you would have had to sand it. I think you could have found a varnish, you know, and gone over it, and it would right. look fine. But he said, can you imagine 
how many hours that would take to do that? I said, oh, about three hours. He goes, yes, but I would not be doing what I have to do, what I want to do. And I would never get those hours back. And I thought, wow, I never thought about that. I did think of monotony because I can remember when I was six or seven. And when you plant a vineyard, I wrote about this when I was in my 20s, but I didn't write when I was six or seven. My grandfather, when I'm looking out the window right now at an almond orchard I have, but the vineyard I pulled out was planted in 1959 and I was six and my grandfather was, he was 69 and he planted it by hand with a, another another two workers and then you put stakes up and those vines just take off in May. So you about every two weeks you have to get twine and tie them up to the stake or they'll break off and that becomes the trunk. And he we would go through there and I would look at that row, a hundred vines and I would get on my knees and I would tie the thing and tie the thing and it would take me a minute. And I think, wow. And I'd say to my grandfather, well, when do we quit? <laughs> when <do> we quit? <laughs> because when we get done with five rows each and I said, but we've been here all this time and I'm only halfway with my first row. And then only he would just begun. <laughs> and then we would pick up walnuts. He had about, he came out of the depression. So this ranch, this farm, you know, it's mostly sold off. I just have 40 acres left, but it was at one time, this part was 138 acres. And he had every uh, alleyway lined with walnut trees. So they'd have walnuts for the year, right? Right. They could live on them and sell them. And, and, but we had to pick them. But so we had this ancient guy come out and he would <laughs> shake the walnuts and then he would send us to pick up the walnuts on the ground. And it was all fall and winter and our hands were black. And if you took gloves, you really couldn't find them in the leaves. So I we'd say we were like seven, eight, nine, ten. Go, Grandpa, our hands are black. He said, well, we go to school and the teacher goes, what did you do to your hands? Are you using ink? Don't Can't you get a ballpoint <laughs> pen? And I said, no, we were picking walnuts. He goes, well, wear gloves. I said, my grandfather doesn't like us to wear gloves. And the point is, when you're doing that, I would be under a tree and I'd look down the row and there'd be 15 of them. Yeah. And I had, and I had a little satanic mind. <laughs> and I'd say things to like, mm. I wouldn't say anything loud, but I said, mm, let me think. That I was about seven and I'd say, Grandpa, what time is it? What time is it? Before he cut me off, he would tell me. And then I, you know, I had basic math and like an hour per tree. And then I think, oh, my gosh, how many hours in the day we have 15 more trees <laughs> and there's no way out. So you get this. What, it, what I'm trying to say is it does about five things for us. Right. It, it develops patience. It develops that the world is not at your beck and call, that there's certain natural things that have to be done to eat and somebody's going to have to do them. It gives you enormous empathy. I remember my mother who grew up here and she was an appellate court judge. She always went to farmer's market in her 60s to peddle fruit with us. Appellate court judge, second woman in California, because she it wasn't because she was trying to show off. She just felt comfortable. And she always told me when you go somewhere and those days, you remember you, you had to it was 10 to 15 percent because you always have to tip. And so bad things she used to. I said, Mom, a lot of these guys are union, but that always sunk into me. So whenever I go, I always tip 20%. And the other day I was at a hotel 
not the other day, about a month ago, and I only had about $4. And I looked at the thing and I, and I left like $4. And I think bad things are going to happen to me the whole yeah. day. And you know yeah. what? They did. They it did. did. <laughs> at, the airport, at the airport, <laughs> I, I, I momentarily lost my license and I had to, it was somewhere uh, in my jacket. And I thought, oh my God. And I, I thought to I, myself, but God, I, I tipped the, the limo driver 20% and the guy that got my suitcase at the hotel, I gave him 20%. But I did that not to virtue signal because I know what it's like to do physical labor. And the, I know the mentality of people who do it. It's very important that people do it and they need to be honored and rewarded or the right. whole country won't work. It was like during the lockdown, it was weird. We were, my wife and I were here in the house and as soon as they declared the lockdown, it was almost divine nemesis. The refrigerator went out. Mm -hmm. The hot, the dishwater, dishwasher went out. The washer and dryer went out. And you couldn't go anywhere. You know, Home Depot was out. Well, it would take a, people a year to, to get yeah. some of that stuff. So we went online and we had to pay out through the nose and you could find it. But then the the fear, weird thing was right during the quarantine, these guys would come out and they deliver, you know, and they had on the these weird things now, instead of having clamp trucks, they're the clamp truck. You know what I mean? They have these big belts around them and then right. one guy gets on one side and they have an engineer where they lift the whole thing up. And they would just come right in and they would put it there and this and that. And I'd say, how many do you have deliveries? They say, we have 15. I said, oh, we didn't know anything about COVID then. It was the first six months. They said, I don't know if we're going to get it or not. We can't. We're, is it all right if we don't wear a mask because we're breathing really hard? And right. I thought, wow, these guys are keeping the country going for the Zoom class. So then when you give them a tip, 20, you know, if, it, if they came in, Right. And give them 20 bucks. Right. Yeah. I always give them 20, $30, depending on how many where they were. And they would, they would get amazed, amazed. They, 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 they just didn't. I ordered a snowblower the other day because um, the one I shot a bearing at, and I need one. And it came in the mail and the guy came out that weighed 300 pounds and he had to jimmy it off the truck and it was difficult. I helped him and I gave him $25. And he said, wow, you don't have to do that. I said, well, he says, and the, the thing is that we don't do that enough, I think. And I don't think these people are making $30, $40, $50 an hour. So it's very important to work and understand what it's like when, I don't know, I used to think to myself, there's no way out of this. I'm farming. I'm making $7 an hour. I got three kids of support. I'm driving an Oliver 1962 tractor six, seven hours a day, disking, 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 go down the road, turn around, go back, go down the road, turn down, dust, everything, monotony, mechanical problems. I can't get out of this. I'm stuck for the rest of my life. That kind of despair, you have to, you have to understand that people have that and they have to be rewarded or talked to or treated right. recently. And you'll never get that empathy unless you do that type of work. I think it's good to do it uh, one of the worst things that happened to me when I had this long COVID is that for nine months, every time I, you know, I used to chainsaw, I still do, but for about nine months until I got over it, 
I couldn't do any of it. And it was like crippling that you couldn't go out and a big branch, I'd try to go out there and then I would try to chainsaw and I get so dizzy. And I thought, wow, if a person can't physically take care of themselves, what's the point? And so it's very important, I think, to continue some, have some hand in physical work. Right. I don't, and I don't mean just exercising or weightlifting or jogging. It has to be something that is yeah. actually, actually work. Sweat. Yeah. Sweat. Many of my friends would not know how to uh, turn on a lawnmower. Never mind mow the lawn. Never mind use a chainsaw. Never mind, you know, build a wall or fix a roof or et cetera. So uh, you're right, Vic. By the way, this series, the, the two parts, uh, I don't know if you have more in store, uh, but it's titled Hard, Brutal, and Dirty Work I have, is a World to Itself. So I have a third one. Stuff. Yeah. A third okay. one is, as I said, I wrote the first two, I think, before this writer did for American Greatness that said it was a waste of time. And then I thought, well, I'll reply to that. So the third yeah. one is that's coming out uh, Tuesday is Hard Work is Ennobling and yeah. why, it, why it is ennobling. It's not a waste of time. I'm not suggesting that you, you know, have to pump pump out cesspools, but I've done right. a lot of that, by the way. Yeah. By the way, Victor, the tipping thing, you know, I as a young boy, I was a delivery boy on a truck that would go around the Bronx and Yonkers selling vegetables, uh, probably maybe it was even a, a, a grapes grown on the Hanson farm. But uh, and some and some items that fell off the back of trucks, as we used to say, uh, there'd be uh, uh, bananas next to the uh, hot fake furs. <laughs> we'd also take we'd also take uh, uh, gambling bets too. Was, anyway, it was kind of a Damon Runyon uh, type of setup. But th all that said, you know, I got tips uh, for making deliveries, etc. And you know, it it. It is a uh, it it is a wonderful thing to to get a quarter back in nineteen seventy and appreciation and kindness it and is. It, it's it inspires it makes it it shows the person there's goodness uh, in the world and these some of these actual quarter tips I got from fifty over fifty years ago still matter to me. Uh, Deeply, and I encourage people. I've always tipped extremely well. Not again, as you said, virtue signaling, but I just think it's the right thing. That's to the do. one thing. You know, that's the one thing I thought. One of the reasons I voted for Trump. I talked to a guy from New York. I think I've told you that, and I asked him if he knew Trump, and he said no. But he saw Trump from his tower where he worked, and he had on occasion seen Trump out of his limo and with his suit go and talk to people where no one was looking right on his construction sites and he said it was generally known that all the construction workers liked him and then i talked to a guy i had to go to florida and speak and the guy knew him very well and was telling me in detail that all of trump's fallow you know foibles but one thing that he admired was that all the groundskeepers and every he had an affinity with them and that for all of his elitism and all that, you do get the impression that some of the transformation of the Republican Party from the Mitt Romney party to a workers' nationalist middle class party was due to Trump's e ease 
ease. I know, and I know everybody's going to say, Victor, the guy lived in Trump Tower. I I know all that, but I'm just saying that there was some realization on his part that he wouldn't have been where he was unless he had people in the blue collar class that he treated fairly, or at least felt comfort. He felt comfortable with, and that's important for everybody to have that that empathy and. Right. But, you know, it's and you have to have kind of a good humor about it. I remember when it seemed like my parents, uh, they had this old farmhouse, but my mom worked in Fresno. And every once in a while, every month, they'd have a big party. I thought it was ridiculous, but they invite people and they love to cook steaks and feed them. It was kind of like a frontier party. It was just full of food and drinks. And they had a lot of lawyers would come and farmers. And it, almost every time the cesspool, right, would start to back up. And we had all these irrigation pipe cesspools that my father had made himself. In those days, you could pump it in in a big, long pipe out to the vineyard and let it dry, crap. From, right. the, from yeah. the septic, it's illegal now. And then you would take the tractor and disc it in. And we were, and you had all of these old pumps, so we had to prime them and then get in your face and everything. But this funny thing was... There was an obnoxious judge. I won't mention his name is dead, but he always had a big stogie, right? Yeah. And, and there was a neurotic uh, <laughs> woman there, too. And Neurotic or erotic? Neurotic. No, I'm sorry. Okay. Uh, not because she was a woman, but yeah. we'd always... So when they left, we we'd, as soon as they left, fortunately, after the party, the whole thing stuffed up. So... We dug two feet of dirt down. We took these old wooden, it was wood. We should have been steel, but we took the lead off. And then we saw all the stuff floating and something was in the intake pipe had, you know, clogged it up. And we, and so my dad said, well, there's your problem. There's seven stogies <laughs> floating on the top <laughs> of the crap. And there were about 10 menstrual pads. You know, oh my gosh. And, oh and, so, my gosh. and he said, Victor, you're going to go, first of all, that'll clog up the pump. So uh, I went down. Oh, gosh. <laughs> yeah. And I had a kind of like a pull net and, you know, netted that out. And then we yeah. pri- primed an old Rig Stratton pump and pumped it through all these leaky pla- uh, iron pipes out to the vineyard about 100 yards away. And then we got down to the crap, and my dad goes, now this is called archaeology, boys. <laughs> so uh, this cesspool should be, have a sandy bottom, but it's been stuck up. It's the septic tank. So before we get the septic tank, we got to take buckets and dig the crap out and then take ropes and, you know, and take it up yeah. in your oh wagon. And, then, and and <laughs> Tons of stogies. So my dad goes, well, that was the party three months ago, and that was the party nine months ago. <laughs> and I said, Dad, we were in high school a lot. And I said, Dad, that's so gross, man. Why are you doing this to us? He goes, where does it go, Victor? You think he's stogies just dissipate and float right. off? Right. When you tell somebody not to, to flush a... A pad, and do you think everybody listens to you? Right. And well, your we father was right. That was sounds very archaeological. Yeah, and he never got angry either. He never got angry. He just laughed about it. And he yeah. was he was covered with crap too. Oh and, my gosh! And then yeah. I thought to myself when I took over, I did that with my you know I had three kids, no money, and so when the septic tank in this 
house. Uh, and then finally I said, why not just call a septic tank person? Can't you afford? It's very expensive now because of all the rules in California. But right. So we had these little tanks and I know this is getting gross to the listeners. So when I decided either to abandon this old farmhouse or rebuild it from the ground up, which we did last year, basically wiring, plumbing, insulation, water, everything, roofing. I wanted to get, and what I did was instead of just getting a normal septic tank, I got a 2,000 gallon concrete vault. <laughs> and then I got a hundred feet of leach line. And the guy goes, but there's only two of you. This is an industrial. I said, I don't care. I want to get the biggest one you've ever had. I yeah. want to get the best leach system. I want to get a sump pump to pump it out under pressure. I never want to deal with the rest of my life. And that's all from that, from, from 50 years of dealing with that crap. Well, and you, by doing this, Victor, you're you're bringing, uh, giving money to other people who can use it for other purposes. So yes, uh, yes, you know, yes, let, yes. Let them, anyway, so. I don't know how we went from Trump to crap. It wasn't delivered. <laughs> well, well, hey, we we were going to talk about. We're about out of time, folks. We were we had some other topics uh, potentially to discuss, but I think Victor, uh, you've been terrific on on these that we have discussed, as we do at the end of the of the. As we near the end of the show, I'd like to thank our listeners for listening, uh, those who listen on iTunes and Apple um, podcasts can can leave a zero to five star rating, mostly five star. Thank you very much. Some leave comments. We read the comments. I will. I have a couple here I want to read. One is not about me, but somebody wrote a comment about me. That was very nice. You know who you are. Thank you very much. Here are a few. Quick, Bubba from Atlanta writes, it's titled, He's Great. And it's very simple, Victor. Fire spitting classicist. Sounds like a bumper sticker. Uh, another one from uh, Anomad2011 titled, Excellent. I love hearing about Rome and the Roman Wars, but could Victor recommend books to read on the subject? We should, Absolutely. We should, yeah, go, well, go ahead. If, if, you, if you have a quick one, go ahead. But there might not be a bad topic for when you're away uh, well, to talk about some history. Yeah, Roman history. I, I, I will do that on the next broadcast with Sammy. Go through the we're, Remember, we started with the Persian Wars, then we did the Peloponnesian Wars. Then we did the Punic Wars. Then we did the Roman Civil Wars. And we're going to talk next time about uh, the barbarian, so-called. That's against the rules to say barbarian, but because that's too judgmental. But mm. but I think it's okay because in that case, they had blue eyes and blonde hair. Okay. <laughs> but So we're going to talk about the... Yeah. The Huns and the Vandals and the Oscars. Okay. They don't. Know. They don't rate on the intersectionality. Of no, the scales, they don't. So, so. They're, okay. like, they're like Vikings or white supremacists, I suppose. One last one. This is from World Gone Nuts, uh, titled "Adoption?" Question mark. Question mark. I've been listening, watching, and reading Victor for the last two years. He has enriched my life in so many ways. Thank you so much. I would adopt you as my father if I could. You are a calming voice in a turbulent world, exclamation point. You know, I have, I just get the sense reading that, that that was not meant as a joke, but as a deep level of, of uh, wishful sincerity. So uh, from World Gone Nuts, uh, Victor, I don't, I don't think you need to 
have any more. You have, you have you had three children. You don't need to. Have I hope I was a good father. <laughs> yeah, I hope I was a good father. I I think every father looks back and thinks that extra task you did for your professional life, you didn't, you shouldn't have done and spent more time with your kids. But then on the other hand, you think, well, maybe I made income that helped them. I don't know. You try to rationalize as you get near the end of your life. Every parent does. I do. Yeah, I do. I don't think any parent ever thinks I spent too much time with my kids. I also think when you get old, no parent thinks, oh my God, I had too many kids. I think every parent thinks, I wish I had had more kids or I wish I had been spent more time with my kids. You know, it's interesting because I, I have five and my my kids are not kids. They're all adults. And as I, you know, think back over the years and when we first were married and we were living in Fredericksburg, Virginia, Sharon and I and two of the kids were they were very little then. And I think of those memories but then for some reason, psychologically, the other three children who are not yet born, but they seem to be in the equation somehow or yeah. other. Yeah. Yeah. It's like yeah. a totality uh, to the family. Uh, I don't know. I, 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 maybe I need I, to see a psychiatrist, but I, but I like that feeling. I think also because I lost my youngest at 27. Yeah, that, she's a lovely. She was a yeah, lovely lady. That, yeah. that especially when you have a child you've lost – and I think in some ways I spent more time with her than my other two, at least. And I didn't mean to do that. It's just that she was kind of like a writer and she was right. interested in politics. And so she would call me. But um, she was kind of a free spirit, very independent. But um, you, when you lose a child, you feel especially that you didn't spend enough time with them. Because you can rectify any lapses in their adulthood, at least maybe. And I think I've done that with I talk to my two children all the time. I'm very close with both of them. But uh, well, you brought your daughter, you brought Susan on, on uh, an I did. And I did. I was an observer. You know, I watched. Yeah. I see things. And, I took her uh, with her. You- I took I took her everywhere with me on my trips, my company that does the trips. I took her on four of those. Which, well, she clearly had an affection for you and you it was just it was noticeable so would i I know you're not beating yourself up or anything no uh, i'm not i'm uh, just uh, i'm just thinking i'm just trying to remind the audience that right i think they feel the same way that everybody and i just i'm trying i'm in that mood because of that poll it's there was such a high number of people who said that having children was not a major concern of theirs and when you when a society has a 1.6 fertility rate that's a a symptom of a a widespread malaise i think selfishness greatest joy i have is my children yes how they how they love each other and interact now and uh the whatever the burdens were of changing diapers are far surpassed so well anyway victor we have to we have to move on. We have to actually conclude. So thank you. You were really terrific today, as you always are. Thanks to our listeners uh, for being with us, to our new listeners especially. Keep coming back. Check out VictorHanson.com. Check out CivilThoughts.com. That's you could sign up for the free weekly email newsletter I write for the Center for Civil Society at Amphil. I give a dozen plus recommended readings. It's free. Your name doesn't go on a list. You are going to like it. Sign up, civilthoughts.com. Thanks, Victor. Thanks, everyone. We'll be back again soon with another episode of the Victor Davis Hanson Show. Bye-bye. Thank you, everyone. 